everyone as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus and this week we find ourselves in Torah portion Mishpatim which is translated judgments or ordinances or rules uh, depending on your translation. Um, most people find this Torah portion to be a bit of a letdown after last week's portion because if you recall last week uh, the portion builds up to their coming to Mount Sinai and, and then God descending onto the mountain and, and the last chapter of last week's portion in chapter 21, God speaks. The people see the fire, the smoke, and they, they see the voices, they see the thunder, it says, which is very strange. And God speaks, he speaks forth the Ten Commandments, and the people are terrified. And um, you know, if you made a movie, this is where you could just let the special effects go crazy because it's so dramatic and so amazing. Then you turn the page of this week's Torah portion and you read about indentured servants, first and second degree murder, kidnapping, personal damages and bodily injury, tort law, property damage, theft, self-defense, uh, rules about rental agreements, sexual assault, financial loans, fair courts and jurisprudence and perjury. And mixed in are some commandments near the end about keeping the, um, the Moedim and avoiding idolatry. And it's like, I mean, what, what a sequel to last week. And I think if we're honest, we, um, we, it's like, ugh, you know, we get to this Torah portion and it's just kind of a downer. But then in the last chapter of the Torah portion, chapter 24, it's not just Moses who goes up the mountain, but Moses and Aaron, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadav and Navihu, and 70 of the elders. So 74 men go up the mountain and they see God. And there's no mention of terror involved this time. But it says, they gazed upon the, the Elohai Yisrael, the God of Israel. That's the first time that phrase is found, the God of Israel. They gaze on him and they eat and they drink. What an amazing ending. Now, if it was me, and it's a good thing it isn't me <laughs> writing the Bible, I would have gone from chapter 21 with God descending on the mountain and then go directly to chapter 24 where the men go up the mountain and then uh, the building of the tabernacle, which uh, begins next week. Um, because it's like God has come to the mountain. I want to be with you. You're going to be my people. Now come on up. Let's have this covenant meal. Now start building a house so I can come down to the foot of the mountain and dwell right in your midst. But right in the middle, we have, I call it whiplash, because suddenly the brakes are slammed on, and we have these, well, what appear to be really boring laws. Now, I'm not saying they're not important, but it's like, can't we just put them someplace else? Why do they have to be right here? Why do you break such a powerful, dramatic narrative to introduce rules about self-defense and theft and tort law. It's, uh, it just doesn't seem to make sense at first. But God is the author of the Torah. And if God placed them here, then they're placed perfectly exactly where they're supposed to be. So even though I am <laughs> talking about how these laws can tend to be kind of boring and seem to really break the flow of the narrative, um, I'm sure many of us felt that way, but I don't think anyone has articulated this difficulty more than Rabbi Vigdor Miller. And um, his commentaries I've always found entertaining. He was, uh, if he was an evangelical, he'd be probably a, a, one of these tent revival preachers. And um, I find his writings entertaining. Don't always agree with what he says. He has some biases against Gentiles, which he does not hesitate to voice, but uh, on the other hand, he has some brilliant insights. And so I'm going to read to you some of the things he has to say in his commentary on the book of Exodus, on this Torah portion. So just bear with me, and I think you'll, I want this to really awaken all of us 
to what God is doing here in this Torah portion with these laws at this time and place. So, Rabbi Vigdor Miller says, Now after this was all over, at the conclusion of this glorious experience, there's no question that the people were on a very high level of enthusiasm. It's certain that the people of Israel felt the highest emotions of dedication to Adonai. Their minds were were attuned and prepared now for the greatest of ideals, and they expected now to hear the most amazing kind of instruction for walking in the path toward the Lord. The greatest ideals and attitudes, the deepest of Torah secrets, and the mysteries of our purpose in life. I mean, after all, God has been speaking from the top, top mouth Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke and the, the shofars and all of this, and they're ready just to, to hear what he has to say. After all, the Holy One, blessed to see, the master of the universe had just come down on Mount Sinai to rendezvous with his chosen people to prepare them for their historic future as the one nation that would serve him until the end of all history. And the people of Israel was on such a high that they were ready to accept it all. They said, we will hear and we will do. We want to do everything. Just let us know the path that we should walk on in order to delight in your presence forever and ever. And we will run in haste down that road. And so what happened then? What followed the giving of the Torah? A remarkable thing. Quote, and these are the mishpatim, the statutes, the rules that you, Moses, should place before them, unquote. Laws of dealing with your fellow man, all forms of damages and the monetary relationships with those around you. We sit down to learn mishpatim with commentaries, and we're reading a book of law. The dry details of how to treat your fellow's own property his cows and his sheep, his shirt and his land, all the various payments for bodily injury and the laws of torts and contractual agreements. What is Torah portion Mishpatim doing here? These aren't the high ideals we were waiting for. Is this what we accepted the Torah for? We had just heard the voice of Adonai, the booming thunder, the bolts of lightning, the smoking mountain. We saw the presence of Adonai with our own eyes, and for this, just to hear these mundane monetary laws, it's a remarkable fact that this was the introduction to their relationship with the Holy One. The details, the minutiae, the petty claims and counterclaims of a man and his fellow were the first things that they heard from Adonai after the great event at Mount Sinai. Just at that very moment, when their hearts were open to everything, ready to hear the most sublime ideas, I don't know about you, but I think it's a big question. What's Mishpatim doing here? Now, certainly, the giving of the Torah opened up for the people of Israel a vista of Shlemus, a, a new horizon of, of peace and, and wholeness, a new horizon of lofty ideals and and noble attitudes. Absolutely it did. The Torah is a ladder that reaches all the way to the heavens. Great ideals of the mind, perfection of character, and nearness to Adonai. It's all included in what the Torah teaches us and obligates us. But what we're learning here is that portion mishpatim is how to get there. The very first rung of the ladder that goes to heaven, like Jacob's ladder, the, the top was in the heavens. The very first rung of the ladder to heaven is to learn about damages. Because these laws almost all have to do with damages to your neighbor or damages to God. It's the attitudes that we learn from Torah portion Mishpatim that will guide us all of our lives as we come close to Adonai. What comes afterwards is certainly a good thing, but the first rung is damages. Tort law, bodily injury, property damage, responsibilities to your neighbor, these rules of Mishpatim. 
Mishpatim is the necessary beginning, the foundation of all greatness. But the question we have to ask is, why is this so? Why is it that in order to begin a career of devotion to God, you have to make it your business to be very cautious about being careful with your fellow man's safety and the safety of his property? Why is portion Mishpatim the first rung on the ladder, the foundation of service to God? And so we'll explain as follows. Now listen carefully to what Rabbi Miller says. The preface to living a life of awareness of Adonai is the knowledge that this world is not ownerless. This world is not ownerless. It is owned. It's the property. It belongs to someone. We have to realize that even to walk on the face of the earth, we need permission. I'll pause there for a second. Now, I have that quote a little bit later in the notes. But we must realize that this world is not ownerless. It's just not out there for us to, to take and use as we want. It belongs to God first and foremost. And under his sovereignty, he has allowed parts of it and the things in this world to belong to you and to me and to other people around us. And these rules of Mishpatim have to do with recognition of who owns what, and what our obligations are to the owners of the world and the things in it. So, let's continue a little bit more. Mishpatim teaches us that when a person uses what is not his, he's actually taking what the Holy One owns. When he's not careful with other people or their property, then he's making his way in this world without the permission of Adonai. And therefore, before any step that you make in this world, before having any dealings with somebody else or his property, you must be aware that you're dealing with somebody much bigger than you imagined. If you eat what belongs to somebody else, you're robbing God. If you walk on somebody's property without permission, it's also Adonai who didn't give you permission. You're trespassing on Adonai's property, property that he allowed someone else to own and, and to be the steward of for a time. He only permitted the man who made a purchase, the one who acquired ownership, to use his things. Anyone else has to be very careful. Now, Rabbi Miller gives a, a great lesson here, a great uh, a story, an example of a, a, a righteous uh, Jewish man who is so careful of the things that have to do with mishpatim, with these laws. Because it's introduced this, just to kind of get your mind ready for, what he's, for this story. It's a wonderful story. We all want to learn the deep things of God's Word. We all want to have deep experiences with God. We want to reach the top of the ladder where, like these 74 men, we get to see God. We get to experience Him close up and personal without fear. To be able to, to know Him as He is. Yet, to reach the top of the ladder, God has given us these rungs the way we treat our neighbor, the way we take responsibility for our cattle or for our, our vehicles, the way we want to make sure that we cause no damage to someone else, to their body or to their property, where we're careful not to take anything from someone else that doesn't belong to us, to make sure we don't use things that belong to another without their permission. All of these rules have to do with our relationship with other people. And it's like God saying, you, you keep these rungs. You practice these rules. You'll get to see me. We're going to talk about why that's so. So here's a great example. This is the story that Rabbi Miller gives. It says, when Reb Zamela Volotsen, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, Reb Zamela Volotsen was on his deathbed. People came to visit him. 
And they found him lying on his bed and learning Torah without stop. He was still studying and reading and praying. Reb Zomela was very weak. He was at the last moments of his life. So the people there said to him, Our dear Rebbe, please take a rest. You're so tired and weak. But I want to get up out of bed, he said. Because the sages say that a person should spend one-third of his time resting, one-third standing, and one-third walking. So I want to get up and walk a little bit to fulfill this rule. Now, Reb Zamella was very weak, and he was on his deathbed, and he couldn't get up without a cane. But he didn't have one. Oh, there's a cane right here in the corner. Here, take it, Rebbe, they said to him. But Rebbe Zamella said, no, no, no. I can't take that cane. It doesn't belong to me. Someone who borrows his friend's object without permission is a robber. So they ran out to find the owner of the cane to get permission. And only after they returned with his permission did Reb Zomela get up and use the cane. He walked around for a few minutes talking and learning, and, and then he lay down and took his last breath. That was a man who had his head in the clouds all the time. He lived on the highest rungs of perfection, but he also knew that to use something that belongs to someone else without their permission is theft. He was always careful with the possessions of, of others because the possessions of others came first. If we really think about it, we are all often committing some form of theft. Maybe you're part of a, the praise team at your, at your faith community. So you're practicing late into the night with your, your band, loudly. Maybe you're keeping the neighbors awake and you're robbing them of their sleep. That's a form of theft. It's a violation, really, of the rules and the spirit of Mishpatim. Or maybe your employer puts out packets of coffee and creamer and sweetener and sugar and, and who knows what. And you think, you know what, I could use a few of these at home. So you take one, just one. You put it in your pocket. Think, I'll just take one home with me. You don't have permission to do that. It may just be a, a very small theft, but it's still a theft. When you take up two parking spaces instead of just one, that's a form of theft. When you talk about another person behind their back, you're robbing that person of their dignity. That's a form of theft. All sins is a form of theft. The first sin was theft. When Adam and Eve took from a tree that was forbidden to them, they stole from God. And every sin is some form of theft. And as I've said many times before, I believe this is the reason why Yeshua is depicted as being crucified between two thieves because all sin is a form of theft. The only question is, are you a thief who repents or are you a thief who doesn't? So, in review, just to, to catch us up, make sure we're on the same page. In the last chapter of last week's portion, in chapter 20 of Exodus, the people saw the lightning, they saw the thunder, they saw the smoke and the fire, and they heard God speak. But the last chapter of this Torah portion, 74 of the elders get to go up and see God and eat with him, to gaze upon the God of Israel. Here, they were terrified. But here, there's no mention of their fear and terror. And what comes in between these two experiences? The giving of Mishpatim. God is trying to show us something here. God is trying to show us that there is a bridge, or better yet, a ladder, 
that we must ascend, that we must practice rung by rung. We must exert the effort, commandment by commandment by commandment, if we want to draw closer to him. And so I have this illustration. Down here at the bottom, you have hearing God, which is what took place in Exodus 21, and at the top of the ladder, seeing God, which takes place in Exodus chapter 24. But in between, what you have are the commandments of Mishpatim. Don't doubt for a moment that God placed these rules exactly where he did to connect these two experiences. He did not make a mistake. This is not an editorial error. Some redactor didn't say, well, let's just stick these commandments in here. No, God did. He placed them there exactly. He wants to teach us something. And you may wonder, well, how is it that keeping these commandments, which all talk about my relationship with others, how do they help me see God? How do they help me draw closer to him? And the answer is quite simple. If we have a deep awareness of others, a deep awareness of others, and a respect for others, then we will develop the ability to respect and honor God. But if we don't respect others, the people we see around us, how can we possibly respect him? Because these others are all made in his image. And we must learn how to treat others and to realize this world is not ownerless. It all belongs to God, and he has allowed the people around us to be stewards of the of property and of objects in this world, that we must treat them with incredible respect, with the utmost respect and care. And if we do that, we develop an awareness of God himself. Because God is the one who gave us these rules. God is the one who created these other people. And God is the one who's allowing us to exercise respect and love for others so that we can learn to respect and love him. I haven't talked about the what, what the word mishpatim really means. Here you see it. You see it in Hebrew. <clears throat> and uh, just a little Hebrew lesson. When you see im at the end of the word, it means it's plural. So instead of using an S as we do in English to make it plural, it's im in Hebrew or ot. So the main word we're looking at is the word mishpat. And mishpat uh, is usually translated judgment. But it's not the kind of judgment that takes place as a verdict in a, a courtroom. Now, this word mishpat comes from the word shapat, shapat, right in the middle. So let me underline that, shapat. Oops, that's the wrong one. There we go, shapat. Shapat is the kind of judgment that means making a good decision especially in relationship to other people. Now think about that. We are always making decisions in respect to other people, whether it's a decision in respect to our parents, our brothers and sisters, our children, our spouse, our, um, our co-workers, our neighbors. We are always having to make decisions. There's not a single conversation you have with someone else where you don't have to constantly monitor and make decisions as to how to respond, even what facial expressions to use. Because you have to decide, am I to respond with happiness to what they just said? Am I to respond with correction? Am I to respond with, um, uh, with, with another question, with a proper answer? I need to be very careful. We are inundated with decisions concerning other people and their relationship with other people. And that's what Shapat is all about. Uh, the book of Judges is called uh, uh, Shoftim. It comes from that word Shapat. And these judges were not the kind of judges that uh, made decisions in courtrooms so much as they were the people God brought along after Israel had made horrible decisions and forgotten God and began to worship idols and the gods of the, the Canaanites. So God would raise up a, a judge. 
And this judge would begin to restore wisdom and Torah to the people and return them to Torah. And when they did, things went fine. But over time, they would forget and God would have to raise up another judge. And so God has given us rules here about how to treat others. And these rules are all forms and expressions of wisdom. One of the things we have to understand is every single commandment in the scriptures, every single one from Genesis on to the end of the Bible, every commandment is an expression of God's mind and of God's heart. Every commandment reflects how God thinks, how God decides, how God behaves. And as we keep his commandments, we reflect our lawgiver, our creator, the almighty God, the holy one. And what is so heartbreaking, and I know I heard this when I was growing up in the uh, evangelical Christian church. And probably every Sunday, somewhere in, in some church, in some Sunday school, a child will ask a question about one of these laws. And the well-meaning Sunday school teacher will say, well, well, honey, that's the way it used to be back then. But because of Jesus, we don't have to do those things anymore. And then we wonder why the modern-day church is so lukewarm, so unrighteous in so many ways. And praise God, there are still righteous people and godly people, godlier than I am, inside the walls of the Sunday church. There truly are. But we know that prophecy tells us that, that the redeemed community, the, the people who call themselves after God's name and claim to be his followers, they will grow more and more lukewarm, will grow weaker, and they'll be resembling the world more than they resemble the world to come. And it's because they've forgotten God's laws. And this is why in Jeremiah, in chapter 6, I believe, that God encourages people, and I think us as well, to return to the ancient paths, to come back. You know, through Yeshua, we have been forgiven of our sins. But he never excused us from keeping his commandments. Because all sin is a form of Torahlessness. That's what John tells us in his first epistle. That sin is Torahlessness. And, and again, through Yeshua, we are forgiven for all the times we have fallen off the ladder. But he had never excused us from keeping his commandments. And because we've been redeemed... We should be the most devoted to keeping his commandments. Out of love for our God, out of love for our Savior, we should be the most devoted people in the world, wanting to do the things that please him and to live a life that resembles his so we can truly represent him in this world. So, again, that quote from Rabbi Miller. The preface to living a life of awareness of Adonai is the knowledge that this world is not ownerless. We have to realize that even to walk in the face of the earth, we need permission. So walking in this world requires great skill, great care, great wisdom. It requires study. God's called us to be a righteous people. He wants us to do righteous acts. And here's something that is probably the cornerstone of everything I have to say this morning. Psalm 89, verse 14, where David says, righteousness and justice. Now that word justice there is the word mishpat, uh, the root of the word mishpatim. Righteousness, tzedakah, and justice, mishpat. These two things are the foundation of your throne. Let that sink in for a second. God's throne. A throne is where the king sits. It's where he rests. It's where he resides. We all want God to reside in our lives. 
We want them to reside in our homes, in our families, in our faith communities. We want God's throne to be established there. We want his presence to rest among us. Well, his throne requires a foundation. And that foundation is made of two parts. One is righteousness. And the other is mishpat. The wisdom to make wise decisions in regards to other people. And if we are not treating others and their property with the respect that God commands us to exercise toward them, God's presence isn't going to be found among you the way you desire. If we're not living righteous lives and making wise relational decisions with others, God's throne has no foundation upon which to stand. Now, one of the things we've been taught, I know I was taught from, from a time of a child, is all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We can't produce anything righteous. We're incapable of doing righteous things. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. No, it isn't. But that's in the Bible, Grant. Yeah, but let's look at the context. And we don't have the time to go through the entire context of that of that statement, but if you look at Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6, this will give us enough of a context to give you an idea. Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to the people of Israel, and um, he's, uh, he's warning them, he's rebuking them for their sinfulness, for forgetting God, from, for drifting from his Torah, and for not uh, keeping God in their awareness. And so Isaiah says, he's speaking to God, says, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. God will meet the person who joyfully works righteousness. And that word joyful is important, too. Those who remember you in your ways. But when you were angry, we continued sinning. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Will you come and, and, and save us? Will you hear our prayers? Will we repent and call upon you? We have all become like one who is unclean. Now notice that. We've become like one who's unclean. It doesn't say we're born that way. It doesn't say we're always that way. But we've become that way. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Filthy rags. So what Isaiah is saying here is not a blanket statement for all of humanity. He's applying it to this particular place where Israel found themselves as they had drifted from God when they'd fallen away from him. And if you still are not convinced that people can do righteous things, then how do you explain Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where it describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. These were uh, John the Immerser's parents. And it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Yah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So she was also a Levite. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Why did God pick Elizabeth? and Zechariah to be the parents of uh, the forerunner of Messiah because they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of Adonai. doesn't sound like their righteous deeds were like filthy rags, does it? These were people who were very conscientious of their obligations to God and to one another. They took the Torah seriously but lived it out joyfully. These were righteous people. So we need to adjust our thinking. Not only are we capable of doing righteous deeds, we're required to do righteous deeds. And through Messiah, we're equipped to do righteous deeds. And in the day to come, we will have to give an account for the deeds we've done, whether they were good or bad, righteous or wicked. Now, what I'd like us to do is, <laughs> we haven't even really gotten into the, to studying the portion yet, and we have all of these 
commandments, these rules. I, I don't know exactly how many there are. I wish I had gone back and counted exactly how many uh, commandments are in this portion of Mishpatim. Because then we'd know how many rungs are in the ladder, wouldn't we? But what I want to do is take a sampling. I'm going to take three of the commandments that I've, I've pulled out. Because every one of these commandments, whether it's a commandment about owning a slave or or selling a daughter to someone who may want to marry her or, or have her marry his son, or whether it's about digging a pit and failing to cover it, or your bull going and goring a neighbor's animal or your neighbor. Every single one of these has relevance for our lives now, today, in the 21st century. Every one of them does. And we need to develop the skill and the ability to take each of these commandments, to study it, to ponder it, and to meditate on it, and then see how it applies to our lives. Because each one of these is a rung in the ladder, and if we can apprehend each one of these and build it into our lives, we become more aware of other people, we become more righteous, we come closer to seeing God face to face, to really reflecting his, his, his glory and his goodness in our own countenance. I know it's a tall order, and we may never accomplish it fully, but we're not excused from trying. So let's grab the first rung and the second and the third. Let's go up this ladder as far as we can because it will change the world, not to mention it will change you. So let's just take three. Um, by the way, in the questions at the end, uh, I'll give you a little heads up on this. Um, I would like to see, and I don't know if time will allow this or not in your groups, but I would like to see each person in your group be assigned or <laughs> grab out of a hat to select one. Uh, get one of these commandments, just one of them, and mishpatim, and think about it and study it and then share how it can apply to our lives today. And um, so however you might want to go about doing that, and it might make a good assignment for next week or the week after, or for all the weeks to come, you might want to make this an ongoing project in your group and take a commandment a week from Mishpatim and study it, discuss it, and, and figure out how it applies to your lives. I think that would be an amazing thing to do, a wonderful exercise that will help us all to grow. So anyways, but to our commandment. Uh, so in chapter 23, verse 5, it says, If you see the donkey of someone you hate or who hates you. Some translations say someone that you hate. Now remember, you can hate someone and love them at the same time because hate is an emotion and you can't quite help it if you feel hatred towards a person. But love is not an emotion. It's an action. And that's what this is about. And um, so you can be very turned off by somebody and yet still behave in a way that is loving and godly toward them. Now we're to fight that hatred in our heart because emotions, negative emotions, whether it's hate or jealousy or pride, these emotions can work like an acid that will eat away at us. So we need to deal with that emotion the best we can. Time is very helpful, but we must also not feed that emotion. And uh, we need to make sure we starve that emotion as much as we can so it eventually goes away. But there's no question that we sometimes can feel hatred towards another person. But if you do hate somebody, you can still act lovingly, behave lovingly in a way that is an action that God performed toward them. Now, the way the Hebrew puts this, it can either be someone you hate or someone who hates you. It's, um, if, uh, it's basically if you encounter someone and there's hatred between you. That's kind of how it's worded. It's, uh, it's, uh, this, this form of the word hate is only found twice in the scriptures. But um, anyways, there's hatred. And you see the donkey of this 
person you hate or a person who hates you, but there's hatred between you. You see his donkey crouching under its burden, so it's loaded up. You think of a donkey as the pickup truck of the first century. Uh, donkeys were extremely strong, and they didn't tire out, and they, you could just load them up, and it's unbelievable how much they could carry, and they just seemed to be delighted to do that. So he's crouching under its burden, and you think of it as maybe tipping over because it's carrying so much weight that maybe it got pushed off the road and it fell in the ditch, but it's, it's, it can't get up. It's under its burden. Would you refrain from helping him? You shall help repeatedly with him, not the donkey, but with the person who owns it. Now, the key word here is the word help. So what if this person is not helping getting his donkey up? Should you go and do the work for him? According to the verse here, no. You'll help the owner with his donkey, but you won't do the work for that person. You know, Rabbi uh, Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, has a wonderful commentary on this portion. I'll read just a short paragraph where he comments on this verse. He says, we have a responsibility to those who acknowledge responsibility. Let me say that again. We have a responsibility to those who acknowledge responsibility. If, however, the person concerned refuses to exercise his duty to his own overloaded animal, then we do not make things better by coming to his aid. On the contrary, we may make it worse by allowing him to escape responsibility. We become, in the language of addiction therapy, codependence. We reinforce the very problem we are trying to help solve by allowing the individual to believe that there will always be someone else to do what is morally necessary. We create what psychologists call learned helplessness. In strictly personal terms, it may be righteous to help someone who refuses to help himself, but there is a risk that we are thereby making ourselves better at the cost of making society worse. It's a powerful statement. And maybe this is one of the reasons there's hatred between you and this other person. They hate you or you hate them because they don't take responsibility for their lives. And they hate you because you seem like a goody-goody, like you're more holy than everyone else. I don't know. But we help those who are willing to help themselves. But to come to the aid of someone who refuses to make a change, we're not helping them. I know of people I, I could name, I'm not going to, but uh, I, I know of a number of people, good people, believers. And over the years, every time I'll see them, I'll, I'll say, well, how are you? How are things going? Uh, I, all right, I guess. Well, what, what's going on? And it's always the same thing. Oh, my wife. It's the kids, it's the job, it's the this, it's the that. And you begin to see a pattern come up. You realize they've never lifted one finger to make a change in their lives. You realize that all these things that they moan about are right there in their hand and they could do something about them if they would only exert the effort. They'll just do something. And then there's part of me that wants to reach out and help them. Let's spend some time. Let's talk about this. And you realize, even after I do that, I realize it doesn't change anything. So by helping such people who refuse to help themselves is not helpful. And this is one of the big gripes I have with our welfare system in this country. I think it's fine if... if the government, or we have systems in place to help people who cannot help themselves. But we are paying the price for having systems in place that help people who refuse to help themselves. And as the scriptures say, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. And I tell you what, hungry people can learn pretty quickly the value of hard work. So there's 
there's a verse we just read about a donkey and a burden, and we think, well, I don't know anybody who even owns a donkey, or if they do, uses it to bear burdens. On the other hand, we all know people who this verse describes. So there is a personal application here. And let me take this one step further. Not only do we learn from this verse something about how we should behave, we learn something. Again, every verse expresses how God behaves. So this time, let's make this person who owns the donkey uh, just some common Joe in the world, and let's make the person coming by, the one who is hated by this person, God. And some people hate God. And there's some people whose behavior God truly hates. So God is here, and there's a person, and their donkey's overloaded in the ditch. And God is so willing to help them. Even if they hate him, he will help them if they'll only lift a finger to do something. And I think in so many of our cases, we think, where is God? He says, I'm right here. I'm waiting for you to take the first step. I'm waiting for you to take the least bit of initiative to change something in your life. And if you will, I'll be right there with you to help you make those changes. Even if you hate me, I'll help you. You see how valuable this verse is? We can see ourselves in it, but we can also see God in it. And every one of these verses, every single one of them, every commandment in this portion teaches us those two things about ourselves and about him. And every time we take one of these commandments and appropriate it into our lives, we're drawing a little closer to him. He comes a little more into view. We distance ourselves a bit more from the ways of this world and we begin to see God a little more clearly. Let's take another one. Here's one. Exodus 23, 15. It says, And you shall not be seen before me empty-handed. And that's exactly how the verse should be translated. It's a great translation of the verse. Velo yira'u pani recham. Recham means empty-handed. But that verse can also be translated this way. My face shall not be seen empty-handed. So it can, it can be translated as, you cannot appear before me empty-handed. And unless, if you're, if you're empty-handed, you don't have something to show for your efforts and what you're doing, you can't come before me. You don't come before me empty-handed. But also means that you can't see my face if you're empty-handed. When you come before a king, you come before him with something, something to give him. You pay honor to him. And we know the, the parable so well about the, uh, the workers with the talents and the worker who just buried his talents in the ground and, and didn't show any return on them. He didn't invest them, didn't use them. He's called a wicked and selfish servant. So we don't want to come before God empty-handed, but you can't even see his face unless you come with something. What do we have to bring? Time is one. Just bringing our needs before him. Bring humility to him. If you have resources, share those resources with people who need them. Invest your resources in building God's kingdom. There's so many things we have to bring to God. They're all things he's given us already, but we can still bring God something. But one of the most valuable things we have to give is time. Because time is life. I know the world says time is money. It's not. Time is life. So give your life to him. That means give your time to him. Seek his face. Set aside time and invest it in seeking God. And he'll reward you in such an amazing way. But if you're not seeing God in your life, it's probably because you're not investing any time in seeking his face. You're, not, you're coming before him empty-handed. Now let's look at the third one. 
Exodus 23:17. Three times during the year shall your menfolk appear before the Lord Adonai. You know, uh, we often talk about the feast, and I, uh, we have a book we use uh, at Beth Tikkun. It's a, it's a great book to introduce the Moedim. It's called The Feast of the Lord. And it starts with Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and Shavuot and, and uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. It goes right on through. The problem is, though there are seven Moedim, there are only three feasts. Only three. Only three of those are feasts. Passover, and then 50 days later at Shavuot or Pentecost. And then we come to Sukkot. That's a feast. Some of the other days are fasts. So those three times a year, the Jewish men in Israel would all make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If their children were old enough to go with them, they would bring them with them. If their families, their wives could come, they'd bring the whole family. And we see this happening when Yeshua was 12 years old. Uh, Joseph and Mary, and apparently Yeshua's brothers and sisters, they all came to Jerusalem uh, for the feast. And when they left, they realized Yeshua wasn't with them, and they had to go back, and they found him in the temple talking to the, the priests and the scholars. This is a commandment we could literally keep today. We can't literally go to Jerusalem three times a year, but we can go before God's throne three times a year on Passover, keeping the Seder, valuing these beautiful traditions and rehearsing the story and, and engaging the elements and the smells and the taste and, and, uh, and rejoicing over the salvation that Yeshua won for us on Passover 2,000 years ago. On Shavuot, the day of Pentecost, to again to, to come together and to... Um, to appear before God, to take that day as a Sabbath, whichever day of the week it is, and set it aside to be still, to spend time with at least a few others of the whole community that can't gather, take that day and just uh, go before the Lord in prayer and, and feast on his presence, on the riches of his word. And then, of course, Sukkot. What excuse do you have not for keeping Sukkot? Well, you have one good one. We live in Ohio, and it uh, <laughs> can get pretty cold and rainy and wet out there. But usually there's one or two days where you can actually have a sukkah outside and sit outside and, and do the prayers and, and have a meal. It's a life-changing experience. But the moment you think, well, that doesn't apply to me, then you're missing out. You're missing out. And you're you're sidestepping one of God's commandments. We need to appear before his throne, especially on these three days. You know, we often quote Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Many people see this and apply it only to Sabbath gatherings or Sunday gatherings. But uh, Robin was uh, participating in a women's conference this week, and the teacher is saying that she believes that this passage applies specifically to these three pilgrimage feasts. And we should not neglect to gather together on these feasts. Not neglect to keep this commandment we were called to come together and to really rejoice in God. So um, I'd say take this seriously. Truly take this seriously. It can be a very life-changing thing. I'm not going to take much time on this, but it's in your notes. And it's one of the most important things, I think, in the Mishpatim. And it describes how Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people. He took the blood, threw it upon the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that Adonai sealed with you concerning all these matters. And I compare that to Yeshua in Matthew 26, verses 27-28, where it says, Yeshua gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. 
Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. Yeshua, with a cup of wine representing his blood, says, drink it, put it inside of you. Outside, inside. Moses said, behold the blood of the covenant. Yeshua said, for this is my blood of the covenant. And Moses said that Adonai sealed with you concerning all these matters. And Yeshua says, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. In other words, he says, I know you failed. I know you haven't kept my commandments perfectly. I realize you may not even be aware of my commandments. In fact, some of you may have just completely revolted and rebelled against my commandments. And I forgive you. I don't excuse you from keeping them. So I'm forgiving you. I'm wiping the slate clean. Let's make a new start. Let's start climbing the ladder. Because Yeshua didn't forgive us for of our sins so that the law can be set aside and there's nothing for us to do now. He did all of the things he did so that we could do the things that he asked us to do. In Romans 8, Paul talks about us who walk by faith, who walk after the Spirit, who keep the righteous requirements of the Torah. doesn't excuse us from the commandments. It enables us to keep them. It gives us such a deep connection with the author of the Torah that we desire to keep his commandments so we can be more like him, so we can be more pleasing to him so we can make more of an impact in this world for him, so we can resemble him in this world. So you can take some time to discuss this and look this over, but I I couldn't go through this Torah portion without drawing your attention to it. And of course, we want to conclude with Exodus 24. It says that God told Moses, Moses, Aaron... Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's two oldest sons, and 70 elders are to come up. Let me just insert something here. Remember what happens later in in Leviticus with Nadav and Avihu or Nadab and Abihu? A couple questions here. Aaron had four sons. Nadav and Avihu were the two oldest, but there was also Eleazar and Itamar. And they're not mentioned among the ones who went up the mountain. And what happened to Nadav and Avihu later on? And of course, you know that they took some strange fire and they went into God's presence and a fire came out from God and killed them. It makes me wonder, is that connected to this? Could it be that Nadav and Avihu were were young, and because they were young, they are presumptuous, a little proud. And when they joined their father Aaron and Uncle Moses and the 70 elders and went up the mountain and saw God, that they became a little too full of themselves. So that later on, after the tabernacle's built, one of them said, hey, brother, let's, let's get some fire here. Let's just go on in and have a chat with God. Let's just go on into his presence because we're pals. We're, we're buddies. We're amigos. And they went in and God's fire came out and destroyed them. Somehow their familiarity with God had caused them to lose their fear of God. And that's a, that's a lesson we all need to learn. Whereas their two younger brothers, Eleazar and Edomar, they didn't go up the mountain. They didn't get to see God. They may have felt like second-class citizens to a degree. Well, why did God leave us out? I think it's because all along God knew that they were the two who would come and minister in their older brother's place. And their humility, their being left out, humbled them to the point they would be more effective priests. And one of them would become the high priest when Aaron died. Just something to think. Think about. Because maybe you feel like you're being left out of some great experience. But maybe God's delayed that experience that he's giving others because he wants you to be humble. Because he has bigger plans for you. On the other hand, if you have had some great experience with God, Take a warning from Nadav and Avihu. 
because they didn't handle it very well and it cost them their lives. You need to be very careful. Well, very quickly in closing, it says that um, they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was the likeness of sapphire brickwork. And there you can see what a sapphire looks like. Sapphires can be different colors, but predominantly they are blue. And we know that this was blue because it says it was like the essence of the heaven and purity. Heavens are blue, so it was a blue sapphire. So the brickwork under God's feet was made of sapphire. Can you imagine? What is God trying to teach us here? Well, again, Hebrew is the key. Here's the word sapphire in Hebrew. It's pronounced sapir in Hebrew, but this, whoops, I don't know what happened there, but I'll be more careful. So this is sapphire, sapir. But it comes from a word, a, a root, a word, yeah, a word that is a root. I just made up, it's, it's called a word. <laughs> but anyways, this is the root of the word sapphire. It has several different meanings. It can mean to count. It can mean to tell a story. But it also is the word for book. We say safer, safer, book. In fact, back in verse 7, we find the word safer because God tells Moses to write this in a book, in a safer. And that is the way the word is predominantly translated and what it predominantly means when you find the word safer in the Torah. So put the picture together. We want to see God. We want to climb the ladder. We want to, to, to see his face. We want to have fellowship with him. And we know that his throne, where he rests his presence, the foundation of that throne is tzedakah, righteousness, and mishpat, these, these commandments, wise decisions in relationship to others. That's the foundation of his throne. But here we find him standing. And under his feet is brickwork made of sapphire. And what is pictured? The book. If you want to find the place where God stands, you go to the book. You think, well, that's kind of boring. I want to go out there and see him. That's physical. That's carnal. That's fleshly. God is spirit. And he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the book of truth. And it's a spiritual book. And this is the sapphire pavement where you will find him standing but it's going to be spiritual. You need to learn to develop your spiritual sensitivities to where the fleshly things become less attractive, less important. But the spiritual becomes more real. It becomes more concrete, more tangible. Because after all, everything physical emerges from the spiritual. God is spirit, and if you want to know his essence, you want to know him truly and clearly and deeply, you have to do it on his terms. He visits and steps into the physical in profound and tangible ways on occasion. But that's the exception to the rule. The rule is, is that we come to him and seek his face, and we grow up and become more spiritual. And one of the ways we do that is to climb this ladder, to value these commandments, these commandments which teach us to value others and their property, to be constantly aware of others. And as we develop that ability to be constantly aware of others, we find ourselves becoming constantly more aware of him. So, to go from the foot of Mount Sinai to seeing God at the top, You've got this ladder of commandments. I hope we never look at this, this list of commandments and rules in the same way again. They are placed precisely and exactly where God wants them to be. And we are blessed if we keep them. So here are your questions for this week. Define righteousness, tzedakah, and justice, mishpat. How are these the foundation of God's throne? And we've touched on in this teaching, but there's a lot more for you to discuss. And I know there are insights that you have in this. 
And I mentioned the second one already. Assign each person or have them draw them out of the hat or take one a week. And uh, one of the laws from Mishpatim, and describe how you can apply it to your personal life. Also, not just how you apply it to your personal life, but how do you see God in that? Because it's an expression of who he is. Number three, what is the proper balance between what Yeshua has done for us and what we are to do for ourselves? And number four, discuss how loving one's neighbor requires wisdom and skill. It requires a lot more than emotion. It requires wisdom and skill. How, skill. how is that possible? How do, how do we do that? So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this amazing, this incredible Torah portion, the one that we tend to think of as boring. And we must make you weep when we think that and say that. So, Father, I pray you would awaken our hearts to take each of these commandments to heart and to employ it in our lives and through it to love you better and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So through these, I pray, Father, you'd make us more like yourself. You'd make us the people you want us to be. We ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.